Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 39, Countdown. For SS General Stroop and his men, who entered the beleaguered ghetto every day, time moved forward. April bled into early May. But for the remaining Jews, and there were so few of them now, time was running out. During the day, the SS troops came in with their tanks and flamethrowers, but their targets stayed hidden. Buildings were set aflame and then brought down with artillery and tank shells. The time in between the fire and the explosions was stretched out so those remaining Jewish civilians could be flushed out and captured. By the 2nd of May, Stroop was able to brag to General Kruger the top-ranking SS officer in occupied Poland, that he had, by now, captured and sent to Treblinka to another 40,237 Jews. And with these impressive results, Stroop boldly stated that setting fires still remains the best and only method for destroying the Jews. And most assuredly, Kruger used this very argument against the angry industrialist who saw their future profits go up in flames, along with the Jewish corpses. In fact, things were looking so positive for Stroop that he no longer had to lie about his casualties. He was only losing one or two men a day, and that was when his men were leaving the rubble behind, and the Jewish resistance rose out of the conflagration and took potshots at his men, and they were getting better at it. But Stroop's men now had turned the destruction of the ghetto and picking up stragglers into a science. In fact, his tactics had improved over his Russian partisan days. Now, the SS were using dogs and seismic echolocation devices. But as always, the best source of information came from informants. Sometimes captured Jews were promised leniency, gave over information, and only then shot or shipped out. Desperation knows no bounds. But as the SS general looked over his map of the ghetto, he was still trying to discern the location of the main rebel base, something that did not exist. How could it? But to a traditional thinker, it had to. So the search went on. Buildings were razed to the ground, civilians were captured, militants were tortured, and then shot. But the tortured men and women could not tell the SS much, that is, of only their own hideout and how many fighters were quartered there. As the destruction continued, the different groups hid where they could, and often went days without speaking to each other, which turned out to be a godsend, whether they knew it or not. As luck would have it, Zavia found herself, and hers, welcomed into a bunker built by the prosperous members of the Judenrat. Now they had cooked food, could listen via a radio to the Polish Prime Minister in exile speak on the BBC of the ghetto uprising, her uprising, while some of her team were helped by a surgeon. Heady days indeed after what they had been through. They even got used to German soldiers walking right over their new accommodations a few times a day. Mark Edelman and his fighters were also holed up, but in less than frilly environs. They were along Franciscan Street and had practically turned themselves into vampires. 
sleeping during the day when the SS ruled the ghetto, and only going out at night to hunt for German soldiers, making sure the status stayed the way it was. For the last few weeks, Stroop had his men safely locked up and guarded in their own barracks in the Aryan section. On May 2nd, the very day Stroop was bragging to his superior, Mark Edelman was awoken from his daylight slumber by a scout, saying the Germans had found one of the entrances to their hideout. Everyone was in panic, except, that is, for Edelman. He was the same man that said of the two SS officers holding white flags, shoot them and use the machine gun. And in that same tone, he told everyone to prepare to attack. Like the SS, the Jewish fighters had come up with their own pre-arranged responses to threats. And his plan was simple. A beautiful female ZOB agent would be sent out of the discovered entrance. If the men topside were German, they would probably shoot her on the spot. But if they were Latvian or Ukrainian, Elderman knew from experience that they would detain her and use her that night for entertainment and then shoot her. It was a chance he and she had to take. So, as the brave young lady walked slowly to the entrance, the others rushed to the other exits, preparing for the distraction. What should have been a quick ambush and escape turned into a three-day battle. Mark Edelman's remaining fighters against two SS platoons, somewhere between 30 and 50 men. The fighting ebbed and flowed, the Germans broke their routine by staying within the ghetto's walls after the sun went down. Stroop would have it no other way. Had his men stumbled upon the main rebel base, was this the end of the resistance? All the more reason to pour men and guns into the conflict. By the end of the third day, the fighting faded away. So the SS troops pulled out, having lost seven of their own. Edelman had lost half of his remaining contingent, but no Jew was taken alive to be thrown aboard a train to the death camp. It's not known whether the young lady survived the beginning of the attack, though it's doubtful. She was probably one of the first to be shot. Once the SS troops were gone, Edelman scouted for another hideout. It didn't take long to find another one along Franciscan Street. But this one was camouflaged by a pile of, let's just call it, refuse. And Edelman's remaining troops did not want to stay there. Fortunately, it was rather small, so only a few of his soldiers stayed there. The rest moved on to the much larger dugout on Pleasant Street. But laid up there was Mordecai Alowitz and his men. Edelman and Angel did not get along. And even though the shelter was larger than most, it still wasn't big enough for the two men. Edelman moved back to his refuse pile. The Pleasant Street bunker would, only due to circumstance, turn out to be the main hideout that Stroop was looking for. The shelter Zevia had been in had been discovered during the three-day battle, which forced her and hers to flee this location. She had lost some of her fighters during the escape, but now that Zevia, most of Edelman's fighters, Angel and his people were all there, together. This bunker now housed most of the remaining ZOB members, about 100 or so. All told, the hideout now housed 300 people. The others worked for the bunker's owner, Samuel Asher, 
and let's just call him what he was, a crime boss who organized prostitution and smuggling. But for all of the man's ways of opposing society's orders, once he realized who his new occupants were, nothing was too good for the Z.O.B. His men had to give up their private rooms. The liquor cabinet was always open to them. And most importantly, Asher offered up the services of his men, who knew the ghetto, even in its current state, like the back of their hand, as they, like Edelman, mostly went out at night. But the first order of business was to determine the Z.O.B.'s next order of business, which hopefully contained an element of them all getting the hell out. So, during the evening of May 7th, one of Asher's men led Zevia, Angel, and his girlfriend to Edelman's less-than-sweet-smelling bunker. As they entered the underground fort, everyone readied themselves for the slights that would soon spark an argument between Edelman and Angel. But the verbal jabs never appeared. Anilowitz was lethargic. He couldn't seem to work up enough enthusiasm to even participate in the conversation. The only time he showed any interest was when they discussed the message from Isaac Zuckerman. It seems that Seymour Rodhauser had stumbled across the JMU's tunnel on his way to finding Isaac. Perhaps the remaining Z.O.B. could use that tunnel to make good their escape. Of course, there were always the sewers, which one of the mob boss's men knew well. It seemed, at least, the exhausted fighters had several options for a better tomorrow. The meeting broke up, with Edelman and Zvia deciding to stay at the Franciscan Street hideout. There was more to discuss. Angel and his girlfriend were escorted back to theirs on Pleasant Street. It had been agreed that their leader would send word to them tomorrow about his decision. But the word never came. The next day had come and gone. No word. By 9 p.m. that night, there was still no word. Zavia became worried. Edelman became angry. And in that mood, he decided to head for their leader's hideout to see what their future held. But the only ones there to greet the ZOB subleaders were a few prostitutes and a handful of rebels. The rest were dead, either by their own hand or that of a friend. The surviving fighters were too embarrassed to tell of what happened, so the ladies told the tale that ended with the lost lives of 80 ZOB fighters, men and women Edelman and Zevia most certainly could have used. During that afternoon, the Germans had discovered one of the five entrances to the hideout. Everyone started to panic, but instead of using the yet-discovered pathways to flee or attack, as Edelman had done days before, Angel moaned aloud that there was no escape. He shot Mira, his love, and then himself. Most of the others, now leaderless, followed suit. When they were done talking, Edelman used every curse word he could think of to hurl at Angel's memory. That was not what a leader was supposed to do. But thanks to his weakness, they were down to just the ZOB members at the Franciscan Street bunker. Edelman then ordered the surviving ZOB fighters to follow him. The women who told the tale were not allowed to follow. When Zavia asked why, Mark replied that they, what was left, were getting out. He couldn't be responsible or have time for civilians. They were on their own. What the ZOB needed 
was a miracle. But when Simha Rothauser had finally caught up with Zuckerman, the other sub-leader, Simha's hero seemed to be drowning in his own catastrophe. Isaac had been held up here with the Sawitsky sisters, who belonged to the Socialist Party, for the last week, and Sima had found him only three days ago. But those 72 hours had been wasted. At least, that's how Rothauser felt. Zuckerman had no plan to get his people out, no coordination with the Home Army, to free those few remaining Jewish fighters. Isaac tried to explain the obstacles before him, but the teenager, who was only used to action, was disgusted with his words. Zuckerman then told the younger man of how, out of desperation, he even contacted the untrustworthy communist who had tried on their own to start an uprising, but to little avail. There simply weren't enough of them around Warsaw. Still, they had given Zuckerman several boxes of guns and ammunition. Simha retorted, could they help the Jews escape? No, was the answer. They were not that organized. A few more days went by, and Simha now hated his one-time hero, and was starting to hate himself. He was sleeping on a bed, taking baths, eating cooked food. Meanwhile, his friends, his family, as he thought of them, had none of these amenities, and they were dying, burning alive, being tortured, or shot. And just days before the mass suicide, Simha finally snapped at Zuckerman, who snapped back. But during their argument, they unwittingly formed a plan. They would take the guns to their allies through the sewers. The Germans had to know the JMU tunnel by now. Yet the breach between the two men was far from healed. After the sun went down on May 8th, a manhole cover just outside the Umschlagplatz, the train station, just north of the ghetto, where hundreds of thousands of Jews had been loaded to start their final journey to Jablinka II, opened. The cover gently pushed to one side. Simha Rothauser's head then barely peeked out of the underground darkness and into the darkness of the rubble. When he realized his location, he cursed at the drunk sewer maintenance men who had led him this far from the south of the ghetto, really almost passing it by. Collecting himself, he told his communist Z.O.B. comrade that he alone would look for the others. Richard Moselman would stay and guard-slash-protect the sanitation workers who had almost screwed up their entire operation. And Moselman was the perfect choice to accompany Rothauser. Just the week before, Moselman and others of the Communist People's Army had led Baruch Spiegel and 41 other Z.O.B. fighters out of the ghetto. Using the sewers, the communist guide had led the others to the sewer entrance at Garden Street, just south of the ghetto. And after a 48-hour wait, moving trucks were used to move the fighters to a location just five miles north of Warsaw. There, they joined escaped Russian POWs and others waiting for the day to engage the Nazis. And although Spiegel's escape had been far from perfect, it certainly had moments of tension as Germans were evaded. The same pattern would be used to bring out the remaining ZOB fighters. But there was just one problem. Simha, stumbling around the ghetto, couldn't find anyone. He first tried the bunker at Franciscan Street, where Edelman had been. Then he tried the one at Pleasant Street, 
Surely Angel was still there, sabotaging the SS. But again, the place was abandoned. After three hours, it was time to give up. Simha returned to the sewers. Not 50 yards away from the place Simha had decided to give up and turned around, the remaining ZOB members were hidden under the bunker, covered by garbage, the place Edelman had used to stay away from Angel. In the bunker, the atmosphere was one of fear, confusion, and desperation. While Zavia and Edelman decided on their next course of action, all those around them had given in to hopelessness, having heard about the mass suicide. Finally, Zavia had had enough. They would leave tonight through the sewers, and in her current mood, she would brook no argument. Edelman was okay with this decision. At least, he couldn't find a cogent argument against leaving. But Isaac's friend, Tuvia, who was still watching over Zavia, argued against leaving. But Zavia overruled him by outranking him. Tuvia would take eight scouts down into the sewers, find a way out, and then send someone back to lead the rest of them out. Tuvia grumbled, but assented. When Tuvia pushed aside the manhole cover and lowered himself down, he was shocked to see dozens of Jewish civilians, obviously hiding from the Germans. Tuvia had been wondering how he could stand the stench long enough to find an exit. These desperate people were living down here. Tuvia let his men pass them. No one said a word. His group then spent the next hour walking along, pushing floating, bloated bodies out of their way. Soon forks were come upon, and Tuvia simply picked which one felt right. He had no map or guidance. After more time passed and more turns taken, the leader whispered to his scouts that he was completely lost. But before a debate could take place, a light appeared up ahead. Tuvia and his scouts panicked as fleeing was impossible in the waist-high sludge. But then the password was whispered from the darkness. John? Immediately, Tuvia whispered back, Warsaw, as he gratefully rushed forward to find the barely-lit face of Seema Rothauser. Jubilation erupted, but then they all remembered who they were and where they were. Each side then exchanged stories in whispers, but eventually Simha cut everyone off and said they had to move out. It was already well past midnight, and they still had a mile to go through the sewers. Everyone was already tired and freezing, but Simha kept them going by telling them of the plan. At the end of their trek through the tunnels, they would emerge at the corners of straight and hard streets which had been located at the southernmost end of the original ghetto. But now, it was an Aryan territory. Still, trucks would be waiting there to take them to the forest hideout north of Warsaw. Before they had set off, Sima had two scouts go back to get Zivia, Edelman, Artstein, and the 40-odd others, the rest that remained of the ZOB. The scouts were to bring them through the sewers and meet Sima under Straight Street. Together, they would all leave the ghetto behind. Anyone else still within its walls was on their own. <laughs>